Please turn to John chapter 2. And as we continue our study through the Gospel of John, we come this morning to verses 13 through 25. John chapter 2, verses 13 through 25. Please give your attention to God's word. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this. And they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man. For he himself knew what was in man. The thing that strikes you the most as you read this passage is the anger of Jesus Christ. As I was doing research for my message this week, I was looking for good quotes about anger. And one thing that struck me as I kept reading quote after quote after quote about anger is that almost exclusively those quotes spoke about anger as though it were inherently wrong. That's true whether I was looking in Christian sources or secular sources. That 99 times out of 100, when we speak of anger, we speak of sinful anger, anger that is wrong. But there's one quote from Albert Einstein, of all people, that I think helps to explain why we have such an overwhelming perception of anger as being wrong. Einstein said, anger is never without a reason, but seldom with a good one. Anger is never without a reason, but seldom with a good one. And we have to confess, if we look at our own lives, that we are rarely angry for the right reasons or for good reasons. If our words are the overflow of our heart, then our anger is a megaphone for our heart. Because when our anger flashes, when we become angry... It's very revealing about what, what it is that we care most about in life and what it is that we're most insecure about in our lives. The scriptures make it clear that Jesus Christ, being the Son of God, is the only man who ever lived who never sinned. And yet there are several incidents recorded in the Gospels where Jesus displays anger. 
So if Jesus never sinned and yet Jesus displayed anger, then obviously there is such a thing as truly, purely righteous indignation. And when we look at those incidents in the Gospels, what we see are some things that clearly made Jesus angry. The hypocrisy of the religion of the Jews made him angry. The weak faith of his own disciples occasionally made him angry. And here, his entrance into the outer courts of the temple of God made him angry. And as we take a moment to look at why this made him so angry, I think it shows us something of the heart of our Lord Jesus Christ. What he cared most about, what he values so much. The context of this incident, of course, is the Passover feast. Came around once a year in the spring. Of course, it was a commemoration, a celebration of how God, under Moses as the mediator's leadership, had led his people out of slavery and bondage and suffering and death in the land of Egypt. How he had delivered them, had redeemed them. And this Passover feast was one of three feasts that took place every year, the major feasts. And at these major feasts, all males, all faithful Jewish males from age 12 and over were required to make a pilgrimage. If they didn't live in Jerusalem, they had to make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem to come to the temple to worship, to celebrate. And so you can imagine that Jerusalem itself, as Jesus and his disciples here during the first year of his earthly ministry, approach Jerusalem for the Passover. You can imagine how many Jewish pilgrims are coming along with them. They say that the the population of Jerusalem at this time of year would multiply by several times. You'd have hundreds of thousands of extra Jewish worshipers coming to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. And as Jesus and his disciples approach Jerusalem, and as they come into the city, of course the focal point is in the highest mount in the city, the highest place in the city would be the temple. The temple was gloriously beautiful in the days of Jesus. It was created out of a very, a, a very pure white, smooth stone, and it was had all kinds of gold ornamentation all over it, It said that when the sun was out and shining on the temple, you couldn't look at it. It was so bright. But here it says that Jesus and his disciples went into the temple, into the outer courts, and what they saw there was dramatically different. It must have looked and sounded and smelled like a stockyard, but from what John describes, oxen and sheep, And pigeons everywhere, along with all the accompanying chaos and noise and manure. You see, the worshipers, when they came to the Passover, they had to bring sacrifices, animal sacrifices, when they came to the temple for Passover. But these people were coming from all over Judea, all over the Middle East, even from other parts of the Roman Empire. 
to celebrate the Passover. So how could they possibly bring the animals that they needed for sacrifice? Even if they tried, there's a good chance that on the trip they would become blemished. And if the animal became blemished, it was unworthy to be offered. It would never get past the temple inspectors to be offered as a sacrifice. Now, the Jewish leadership recognized this problem, and for generations before that, they in earlier generations, they had set up a marketplace on the other side, outside of Jerusalem, across the Kidron Valley, over at the foot of the Mount of Olives. That's where they used to set up the marketplace where these pilgrims coming to worship could buy the, the oxen, the cattle, the, the uh, sheep, and the doves. If they were poor people, they would buy uh, pigeons to offer as sacrifices. Well, you can imagine how the temple leadership began to think. Well, you know, if we brought actually brought that marketplace into Jerusalem, that would make it more convenient and we could have more control over what was going on. And matter of fact, why don't we, instead of bringing it into Jerusalem, why don't we actually bring it into the outer courts? It's the court of the Gentiles, after all, and we don't think that much of the Gentiles. So why don't we just go ahead and put the marketplace in the court of the Gentiles? That way, when they come into the temple, we have total control over the buying and the selling, and it's just so much more convenient for the worshipers. Same kind of reasoning that stadium owners use when they make you buy all your food in the stadium. And it would be the same same result. You know, of course, the pri- prices raise because they have a monopoly. They've got, uh, they've got a captive audience. They can't uh, go anywhere else to buy what they need to buy, so they're going to hike the price. And so, again, you can just imagine how many thousands upon thousands of animals are here in the courtyard ready to be sold to the worshipers when they come to worship. But along with the animals, there were the money changers. And that's because the other thing that worshipers needed to bring when they came to worship was the half a shekel tithe that they were required to bring at the Passover to give to the temple. The problem was the tithe had to be given in a particular currency, a currency that was known for its pure silver. And that was the only acceptable currency to pay the tithe. And so when these people came from other parts of Palestine or other parts of the empire, they would bring their own currency and they'd have to exchange that currency to get the pure currency that they could use to pay the tithe in the temple. Well, again, the temple authorities brought the money changers, the ones who would convert the money into the courts of the temple, and they would receive the currency. They would give them the pure currency for the temple, but then they'd also, of course, tack on their commission, which over time got a little bigger and a little bigger, and as they got a little more greedy. So along with all the animal mess and chaos and noise, you also have the haggling with the money changers. And so you just get begin to get a sense of what the outer courts of the temple look like as Jesus And his disciples walked into them. And it says that Jesus became furious. To the point where he grabbed some rope. And out of that rope he made a whip. And he used the whip to drive the animals out of the temple. He poured out the coins on the money changers' tables. And then he flipped the tables over. So you have coins flying everywhere. Animals going out. And he even appears to have driven the, the sellers and the money changers out of the temple courtyards to cleanse the temple. Of this travesty. And John, interestingly, refers to this incident as a sign. 
A sign. And as we've been talking about signs these last few weeks, remember a sign is something that is meaningless in and of itself, but it points to a far greater spiritual truth, particularly in John's gospel, a truth about who Jesus Christ is and why he came to earth. So what does the cleansing of the temple show us about Jesus Christ? Well, think about it. As Jesus Christ... The eternal Son of God who had dwelt for all eternity past in the purity and glory and majesty of heaven with God the Father and God the Spirit. As God the Son came to earth and walked among men in this fallen world, among sinners like you and me. In a world that hasn't changed in the last 2,000 years. You can imagine how many things that Jesus Christ laid eyes on that would have made him angry. He would have seen adultery. He would have seen murder. He would have seen thievery. He would have seen poverty and greed and oppression. And yet, he controlled his anger perfectly. But here he displays it. And I think that's significant, that he displays his anger in this setting. What does it show us? What does it say to us? Well, first of all, John points out, It shows his zeal for pure worship. Jesus says, do not make my father's house a house of trade. The temple was intended for every generation before that up to that point was intended to be a holy place, a meeting place where God would meet with his people, where they could express their prayers to him, where they could worship him, adore him. And they had progressively turned the temple into a man-centered marketplace. Now, it's interesting, if you read the Gospels, you realize that Jesus actually did this twice. There were two cleansings of the temple, one at the very beginning of his ministry here, and one at the very end of his ministry, before the last Passover, before he was crucified. You know, that shouldn't surprise us. I'm sure that the animal sellers and the money changers were back by the next year or certainly would have been back there the next day if they had the opportunity. The second time, at the end of his ministry, when Jesus cast out the money changers and the animal sellers, he says, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. So there, his concern, the second time his concern, his focus was mostly upon the greed and the corruption of those selling the animals and the money changers. But this time, the first time, the focus of his wrath is how they have taken a holy place, a place where sinners can meet with God, and have turned it into a marketplace. They've made it common. They've filled it with the distractions of life in a fallen world. The disciples, it says, it's interesting, it's the disciples saw what Jesus did and they interpreted it in light of Scripture, Messianic Scripture, Psalm 69. In that Psalm, David writes, zeal for your house will consume me. By consume there, it doesn't mean an internal consuming, it means a persecution. In the context, David is writing his psalm for the persecuted. He said just before that verse, he writes, it's for your sake, Lord, that I have borne reproach. And just after that he writes, the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. 
In other words, zeal for the honor and glory and worship of God will bring attacks from God's enemies. And that's what happens here. Christ was a zealot for worship. There were political zealots, social zealots in his day that wanted him to back their cause. But what he was a zealot for was for pure worship. Because that is the ultimate good for everyone and everything in the universe. The ultimate good, the ultimate pleasure that we can possibly experience is to see the glory of God and bow before him and worship and adore him. It's the chief end of man. And so if that's true, if the best good for you is to be worshiping the Lord, then what would anger the Lord more than something that would distract you or hinder you or prevent you from worshiping? This is why it was so important to Christ. Because there is no greater good than to see the glory of God and to worship Him. We had some membership interviews this week, and one of the people we interviewed was talking about their background being raised in a liberal church where they did not preach the scriptures, did not preach the gospel. And as this person told their story, I really resonated with it because I had the same background. Grew up in a church where, as far as I can remember, I never remember hearing the gospel preached. Certainly did not have the the scriptures open to us week after week in classes or in sermons. And I just, I was really struck thinking back on my own stories. I listened to this new member tell her story, how she talked about how angry she was once she truly had her eyes opened, once she had been truly converted, how angry she was. And for years afterwards, angry at the leadership, at the preachers, at the teachers of the church she grew up in because they had not, Basically, given her the opportunity to see the glory of God and to worship him. They had distracted her. They had prevented her from truly worshiping. And that anger that she felt, and I I know that anger, I've had it all my life to some degree, toward those who did not, who were given the responsibility of presenting Christ in his word and his glory so that we can worship him, those who refuse to do so. I felt that anger. And it is a righteous indignation. It is the anger of Christ. And it is the challenge to the leadership and and, and the lay people of every church in every generation to ask ourselves, how have our churches hindered people from seeing the glory of God and worshiping? How have our churches become man-centered marketplaces instead of places where they can see And glorify God through his word. So this sign, this incident, and this first Passover shows us that Jesus was a zealot for pure worship. The second thing that this sign shows us is that he is the God-ordained refiner of our worship. One commentator says that Jesus must have been aided by the guilty consciences of the sellers and the money changers because they seem to clear out very quickly and with very little protest. But it was the temple, the temple authorities who came to Jesus and got in his face and they said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? In other words, by what authority do you 
act as a reformer of the worship of the temple. What are your credentials? Show us a sign. Prove to us that God has ordained you to dictate what the worship of God's people should look like. It's interesting to me that they don't argue for their right to bring the money changers and the animal sellers into the temple courts. I think they knew. Clearly they were wrong. But instead of confessing their sin, they attacked Jesus. I'm sure they'd picked up on what he had said in his statement where he called the temple, my father's house. No earthly authority would ever do that. That would be blasphemous to say, my father's house. He was claiming to have unique authority to enforce God's will over worship as the son of God. And he acted in cleansing the temple with unilateral authority. He didn't consult with the Pharisees. He didn't consult with the Sadducees. He didn't consult with the priests. He acted as a son of God. As a matter of fact, if the Jewish leaders had read scripture very carefully, if they had known and understood the messianic prophecies accurately, this is a passage they would have read. Again, John bases a lot of these early chapters of his gospel on in indirectly telling us how they fulfill the very last words of the very last prophet of the Old Testament. We've already looked at that in Malachi chapter 4. Let me take you back to Malachi chapter 3. Listen to what he says. Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. We've already seen that this applies to John the Baptist as the forerunner to announce the coming of Christ. I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. This is literally being fulfilled in John chapter 2. The Lord will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify, who? The sons of Levi, the ones responsible to oversee the worship of God's people. He will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings and righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years." There is Jesus' authority, if the temple authorities really knew the scriptures. He had full authority as the Messiah to come and to purify the worship of God's people. The coming of the Lord to his temple would result in the purification of worship. And that's what we need to remember today, is it's the word of Christ that dictates to us how we are to worship. We are not to go out and survey the masses. We're not to try to understand what appeals to fallen man so that we can develop a worship that is pleasing to him. That's a man-centered worship. A God-centered worship, a Christ-centered worship, a purified worship is worship that is rendered to him according to his will. He is the refiner of our worship. And his word is the guide for how we are to worship. When it comes to what's appropriate worship, I just hear too much in the church about what we like, what appeals to us, what reaches us, what makes us comfortable. But that's not the concern of scripture. 
It's what has Christ revealed to be his will regarding how he is approached in worship. He is the refiner of our worship. And then thirdly, John tells us that this sign of the cleansing of the temple shows us that Christ is not only the refiner of our worship, but he is the focus of our worship. As always would be the case when Jesus' enemies demanded a sign from him, he refused to perform. Instead, he gives them a riddle. He says, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Now, of course, the temple authorities, they hear this and they laugh. It's a ridiculous idea. They said, you know, Herod, you know, King Herod, the evil King Herod, one of the good things he did in his life was to restore the temple to the most, from the earthly standpoint, the greatest glory it had ever seen. He started that project, that renovation project of the temple 20 years before Jesus was born. And actually, it wouldn't be finished until 63 A.D. That's when the renovation and glorification of the temple under Herod, uh, his project, that's when it got finished, about seven years before it was totally destroyed. And so the temple authorities look at Jesus and say, it's taken us almost 50 years to get the temple to this point. You say you can tear it down and build it back up again in three days. That's ridiculous. Well, that's a consistent theme through John's gospel, people missing what Jesus is really saying because they took him too literally. In the next chapter, we're going to see how Nicodemus was totally puzzled by the concept of regeneration, saying, how can a man be born when he is old? In chapter 4, the Samaritan woman, when Jesus talks about water that gives everlasting life, she'll say to Jesus, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty. And later, when Jesus talked about us needing to feed upon his body and to drink his blood, people took him too literally again. They said, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? You see, Jesus wasn't talking about the stone structure that was standing before them. Not even the disciples understood the riddle at the time, but John, in in verses 21 and 22, John, in hindsight, writing well after the fact, says he was speaking about the temple of his body. He basically, Jesus is saying to the Jewish authorities, make my day. Destroy this temple of my body. Kill me. Now later, it's interesting, in his trial, His statement was used against him where he said, I will tear down the temple. He didn't say that, did he? He said, if you destroy the temple, if you destroy the temple of his body, he will be raised in three days. That's the claim that he's making. It's a claim that will be be proven in the resurrection. The apostles later used the resurrection as the credentials for Christ. Just give you one example in Acts chapter 17, where Paul is preaching in Athens, and this is what he says. He says, The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given us given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. It's the resurrection that verified the claims of Christ. The resurrection is his credentials. That's how we know he is the Son of God. And that everything he claimed about himself and his mission is true. 
But Jesus is saying more than just that he will rise from the dead, as amazing as that is in and of itself. He is saying that when he has been raised from the dead, he will fulfill the very meaning and the purpose of the temple. The Old Testament worship was filled with shadows of Christ, the priesthood, the blood sacrifices. The temple itself was a shadow of Christ. But once Christ was crucified and shed his blood on the cross and offered the blood that cleanses us from sin once and for all, all of those shadows go away. They are all made obsolete. And the risen Christ is now the meeting place between God and man. Remember the vision of Jacob that John refers to back in chapter 1, that Jesus says that I am that meeting place between God and man, the ladder between man and God. And that's what John is saying back in chapter 1. We looked at this before in verse, he says, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then in verse 14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. The glory as of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. He tabernacled among us. He dwelt among us. He became the ultimate temple where sinful man can come and have their sins atoned for and worship a holy God. His resurrection made that possible. As Paul says in Colossians 2 verse 9, In Christ the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. He is the place where we go to meet with God. It's hard to know how to apply this passage today. We're talking about pure worship. Christ is a zealot for pure worship. The word of Christ is the guide for pure worship. And Christ himself, the risen Christ, is the focus of pure worship. But how do you apply that today? You look at how Jesus got angry in that situation, but all that's gone now. There is no Jerusalem, no earthly temple, no priesthood, no blood sacrifices. What does pure worship look like today? Well, we're going to look at this over in John chapter 4. Because Jesus spells it out there. Beginning in verse 21. Speaking to the Samaritan woman, Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain in Samaria nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. Verse 23, but the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. Many complicated questions about how to appropriately approach God to worship. But a very simple principle underlies all of it. Where the Spirit of God is present and the Word of God is clearly proclaimed. Born-again people will worship. Where the Spirit of God illuminates and draws people with a desire to see the glory of God, and where the leadership of the church is faithful in proclaiming the Word of God and presenting the glory of Christ in the Word, the Spirit and the Word together create worship in the heart of true seekers. It's that simple. To worship is to see the glory of God, and we see the glory of God in the face of Christ, and we see the face of Christ as he is revealed in the word. You have seen the glory of Christ this morning from John chapter 2. 
If the Spirit of God is with you, then you have all that you need to worship him in spirit and in truth. Jesus cleansed the temple twice during his earthly ministry. But by his spirit, he has cleansed the temple over and over and over again since then. As the word of God is brought back, as worship is reformed, as God's people humble themselves and repent, the worship of God's people is cleansed because the blood of Christ makes it pure. All of our worship is impure and unworthy to be offered. But that's the purpose of the cross. It was to make our worship acceptable. At the end of the passage in verses 24 and 25, it says at that point, many people began to follow after Jesus, but it says Jesus did not entrust himself to them. Later on in John chapter 6, we're going to see that vast majority of these people stopped following him after his teaching got more hard, more difficult to accept. It says here, Jesus did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people because he himself knew what was in man. He, even in that day, and in, in, in as much today as then, sees the heart of those who come professing to worship him, to follow him. He knows our hearts perfectly, far better than we know them ourselves. He knows our bad motivation. He knows our apathy. He knows our sin. But yet we can still worship him because his blood has been shed. He has opened the way through the cross And so let me conclude this message by going back to that passage we read earlier from Hebrews chapter 10, beginning in verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful." Christ is zealous for our pure worship. He has come to tell us what pure worship looks like, and he has come to be the focus of our worship. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the anger of Christ, the righteous anger. Lord, may we understand that we are not to come into your presence casually, We are not to come into your presence presumptuously. We are not to come into your presence distracted by the things of this world, but we are to come humbly confessing our sins and resting upon the shed blood of Christ to open the way for us into the very heart of your temple, into the very heart of your presence, that we might see your glory revealed in the word, revealed in Christ crucified and risen again, that we might bow before you, And sing your praises. Declare our eternal love to you for all that you've done for us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.